amazing God, amazing King. We stand before you this morning with praise on our lips and adoration in our hearts. We declare today that you alone are sovereign, that you alone are holy, that our salvation is from you and you alone. We thank you for the mercy and grace you have shown us, for the privilege to be called children of the God Most High. Open our hearts and our minds this morning to your word, Lord, and then give us the power through the Holy Spirit to respond in love and in obedience. Let us do what your scripture says in Proverbs, to trust in you with all our hearts and lead not on our own understanding. Please bless the preaching of your holy word today as we feast on the bread of life that sustains us, and we pray this this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So, we're in 1 Peter, chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses, uh, specifically verses 8 and 9, uh, but I want to do a little review, so we'll, uh, we're going to read verses 3 through 9 before uh, we focus on actually 8 and 9. So starting with verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, not, see, you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now this group of verses is a call to rejoice in God for the benefits of salvation. And the text uh, is uh, actually neatly divided into two sections. Verses 3 through 5 it exhorts us to praise God for our salvation. While 3 through 9 uh, exhort us to praise God in our suffering. We are taught to rejoice because of suffering and in spite of suffering. And then verses 6 through 9 tell us there is joy in focusing on what God is doing in your life in the midst of various trials. Now our text this morning is part of this uh, later section in the paragraph. Verse 6 tells us uh, what to do when we are grieved by various trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And when you're grieved by various trials, praise God anyhow. But how can you rejoice in the midst of trials? You ever ask yourself that? Verse 7 tells us we can rejoice because we know that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the word revelation means an unveiling or an uncovering. 
It refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there's a real sense in which Christ is present among us. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus declares, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Yet, the fullness of his presence is veiled or covered. It refers to the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, but, or hidden. But there is coming a day when the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ will be fully manifested. The veil is going to be lifted. The cover is going to be removed. The curtain is going to be drawn back. 1 John 3.2 says, we shall see him as he is. Revelation 1.7 says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. But what do we do in the meantime? Verse 7 is a promise of future reward for those who remain faithful to Christ in the midst of life's trials. Now, this is good news. But what do you do, what do we do when the good news doesn't seem good enough somehow? What do, you, what do you do when the promise of future reward does not seem to be sufficient to help you get through your present trials? Well, in verses 8 and 9, uh, which is our subject for today's sermon, Peter tells us there is another spiritual resource we have access to in Christ that gives us real power for difficult times. We have the promise of future reward, but we also have the power of a present relationship. Amen. You see, my friends, the promise of future reward means nothing if you don't have the power of a present relationship. Let me repeat that. The promise of future reward means nothing if you do not have the power of a present relationship. The thought that you will be with the Lord one day will not help you if you do not know how to be with the Lord right now. The hope of seeing the Lord one day will not make a difference if you cannot see him now. This is the final word of hope Peter offers in these, uh, to these troubled Christians in this passage. You can see Jesus even though you cannot see Jesus. Isn't that cool? The promise of uh, a future reward is uh, inextricably, inextricably, there you go, Tied to the power of the present relationship. You can face life's difficult times with hope when you focus on your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So check it out. The believer's personal relationship is described negatively and positively in these two verses. There are two negative statements in verse 8. Peter says, though you have not seen him, then he says, though you do not now see him. You did not see the incarnate past, uh, Christ in the past. None of us did. And you do not see the glorified Christ in the present. Yet there is a real sense in which you can see him, even though you cannot see him. 
Peter advises these troubled believers to stop looking at what you can see and instead focus on what you cannot see through your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In verses 8 and 9, Peter gives us four marks of a true relationship with Jesus Christ, and I, and I want to share this with you today. First, personal devotion. Verse 8 says, though you have not seen him, well, Peter's readers did not see the incarnate Christ when he walked the earth. As a result of providence, geography, history, they did not see the sandal feet of Jesus when he walked the earth. Now, there may have been some people, maybe in Pontus or Galatia or uh, Cappadocia or Asia, who maybe saw Jesus in his early life and ministry. But I'm pretty sure this number was uh, uh, so minuscule that Peter could categorically say to his readers that you did not see him. And there is a hint here of personal testimony and theological controversy. Peter's readers did not see Jesus during his incarnation, but Peter did. Peter was one of the first disciples of Jesus. He was one of the members of the inner circle of disciples. Peter was the de facto spokesperson for the twelve. They thought it, Peter said it. Peter's the one who made the great confession, and listen to this. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a confession. And then Peter calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now this te personal testimony may point to a hint of theological controversy. Some scholars suggest that one source of tension in the early church was between those who had physically seen the Lord and those who had not. But Peter makes it clear that the Christians who did not see the Lord in the flesh are not second-class Christians. To the contrary, Peter commends their relationship with Christ. In verse 8 he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. This is the mark, uh, the first mark of a true relationship with Jesus Christ that Peter identifies in this text. Genuine salvation is evidenced by a personal love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus debated unbelieving Jews. In John 8, uh, 39 and 42, they declared, Abraham's our father. But Jesus rebutted, if you were Abraham's children, you would not be acting the way you are. You're trying to kill me for telling the truth. Abraham would not have done that. You are doing the works your father did. Well, they answered, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. But look how Jesus replied. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. This is the mark of true Christianity. No one can say that God is my Father who does not love Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And Ephesians 6.24 says, Grace be with all of you who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The sure sign of a true Christian is personal devotion to Jesus Christ. At its core, Christianity is not about a doctrinal statement. 
It's not about a moral code or an ethical system, religious formula. It's a love affair. It's the ultimate long-distance relationship. Verse 8 says, though you do not see him, you love him. Well, this word translated love is a word used throughout the New Testament to speak of God's love for us. It's a sense of goodwill that is moved to act in the best interest of the one loved, even to the point of self-sacrifice. And uh, in its uh, grammatical emphasis, it denotes, uh, it denotes continual actions. This is real love. It is not a response to a feeling. It's an act of the will. Even though you cannot see what the Lord is up to in your life, you love him anyway. Now mark this down. If you do not love Jesus, nothing else matters. Jesus wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus, and he commended them for their good works, their moral integrity, and doctrinal fidelity. But Revelation 2.4 says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Jesus threatened to remove their lamp, and their lamp stand from its place if they, not, if they did not repent and come back to their first love. The practices of religion will only ensure that you're a candidate for judgment if it's not rooted in and flowing from personal devotion to Jesus Christ. But 1 Peter 4, uh, 8, praise God, says, love conquers a multitude of sins. Now, the second mark of a true, Christ, of a true relationship with Christ is abiding trust. Please turn with me to... Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And we're going to read verses 24 to 29 together. John 20, verses 24 to 29, <clears throat> records the conversion of Thomas. And Thomas was not present the first time Jesus appeared uh, to the disciples after the resurrection. Let me get there. I got ahead of myself. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now we see again that Jesus declared that those who believe in him uh, without seeing him are blessed. And this is a logical conclusion. The irony of this wonderful blessing is that your faith only operates in the realm of what you cannot see. Anyone can uh, believe if they see it right in front of them. But real faith is demonstrated when you trust the Lord beyond what you can see. Proverbs 3, 5 uh, through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 5 uh, verse 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. And then Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So Jesus declares that those who believe in him without seeing him are blessed. And Peter affirms this blessing by declaring, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. You do not see the resurrected, enthroned, and glorified Christ as he sits at the right hand of the Father. You will see him one day, but you do not see him now. Yet you believe in him. This reference to faith does not merely mean that you agree with what the Bible says about Jesus. Faith is more than mental assent. In fact, you can accept the facts about Jesus in the Bible and still go to hell. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, real faith is more than agreement with facts. It is confidence in a person. And that person being Jesus Christ. I'm thinking back to a time in my uh, early youth when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Remember that, Tim? Yeah. We were there. Sorry, Tim. (laughs) Couldn't help it. Actually, when my uncle decided to take me out onto San Francisco Bay in his not-so-sturdy-looking fishing boat, the paint was peeling, There was rust on every piece of metal. The wood was cracked in spots. You get the picture. But he assured me that the boat was not going to sink or tip over. Now, he used a lot of words to explain why. And I had no idea what he was talking about. But I proceeded to get in the boat anyway. And guess what? I had a great time. 
But I didn't enjoy myself because I understood the construction of boats, the rules of navigation, or the dynamics of water. I enjoyed the ride because I trusted my uncle. That's why. What he said came true. And so it is with faith in Christ. The Lord does not explain all the details of how he's going to get us from earth to glory. Charles Spurgeon said it well. He said, little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. So let's talk about faith as saving faith then. And here the Bible teaches us several things about the faith that saves. First, the nature of saving faith is faith in what you have not seen. Scripture repeatedly makes it clear that we are saved by faith. And at the end of this passage, it says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It says it right there. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for grace you have been saved through faith. Romans 3.22 says, we receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can go on and on and on about such passages in the New Testament, but Scripture makes it clear multiple times that we are saved by faith. But this passage also tells us something about the nature or kind of faith that saves. Saving faith is described as not having seen him, as not seeing him now. It makes it clear that saving faith is believing and loving a Jesus whom we have not seen, whose death on the cross we did not see, whose resurrection we did not witness. And inherent in saving faith is this idea that it is believing in what has not been seen. Again, we, we can see that when we look at the classic definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Saving faith is in the truth of what we have not seen. And here it is. Here it is just where what so many people long for gets out of line. Right? Gets out of line. They ask God for signs or visions or proofs. They pray prayers like, God, if you are real, show me. Or give me a sign and so forth. But we need to understand that this is exactly the opposite of what the Bible says is saving faith. Going back to John 20, verse 29, Jesus asked Thomas and said, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see me and yet believed. See, here Jesus indicated that not only what was true for his disciples then, but what would be true for all those who would follow in their footsteps. That saving faith is not based on what we see. And we need to get this desire for seeing uh, out of our heads. You just got to get it out of your head. 
we are not going to see here on earth. Our faith will never please God if it has to be based on what we can see with our eyes. Or something that we can put our hands on. We have to believe what his word says when we haven't seen it. This is the kind of faith that saves. Saving faith means that you did not see Jesus die on the cross for your sins. You believe it. Saving faith means you did not see him alive again like the apostles and 500 witnesses did. But you believe he did rise from the dead. Don't you? Saving faith means that you may not see or feel anything happen to you when you give your life to Jesus. But you believe you're saved because his word says you are. And Jesus' words in in John 20 apply to you. To all of you here who are saved. Blessed are you who did not see and yet believed. Now, this goes contrary to what we might think, doesn't it? We might think that the really blessed person is the one that God gives a miracle or a vision to. Who get to see something. But Jesus said no, on the contrary. Blessed are you who did not see and yet believe. Why? Well, because that means you have saving faith. That's why. Just as uh, verse 9 of our text uh, today says, you obtain as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Believing what God says in his word is true without seeing it. That is saving faith. Now, the evangelist in me needs to say the following. Maybe you're here today wrestling with becoming a Christian. But you're hesitant because you have not really seen evidence of some of these things. Maybe you have been asking God to show you a vision of him or to show you some sign. Stop doing that. Didn't make you, didn't make you jump there. But stop doing that. You are right where God wants you to be right now. You are in just the right position to be saved right now. Because saving faith is believing in him who you have not seen. Get it? Now let's talk about the direction of saving faith. Faith that saves us is faith in Jesus. But we do need to clarify here, I think, <clears throat> that it's not just faith that saves us. A lot of people think of faith as if it was something on its own. People say things like, have faith. Or, just believe. Stuff like that. During Christmas season, we see ornaments and decorations with the word believe. Now, believe can be good, but believe in what? Believe in Santa Claus? 
Believe in the spirit of the season? Believe in what? We need to understand it is not just faith that saves us. Faith must be in something. Any faith is only good is only good as the object in which it is placed. Now, I read an article uh, several years back. <clears throat> it was about this daredevil guy who was climbing the skyscraper in Florida. And, he was, and he was, as he was climbing, he thought what he thought was a little ledge that he could grab onto. But when he grabbed uh, when he grabbed it, he fell many stories to his death. And when they found his body in the ground, they discovered clutching his hand, it, it was like this uh, daub of mud an insect had built on that wall, and it looked like a ledge. That man had put his faith in what he thought would hold him, but it didn't. He really believed, but his faith was only as good as the object in which it was placed. And in this case, the object he put his faith in was not trustworthy, and he fell to his death. We have to realize <clears throat> that the same thing is true for us. It's not just faith that saves us. People talk about the importance of being people of faith, as if it was just having faith that was important, no matter who or what the faith is in. But the pertinent question is not just do you have faith, but what is your faith in? Is the object of your faith reliable? Is the object of your faith trustworthy? Now the Bible teaches us that saving faith is faith in one specific person who saves. And that person is Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 8 and 9. You will notice that four times, well, that's eight, four times in this passage it refers to him. You have not seen him. You love him. Though you have not seen him, you believe him. Him, 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 him. Him here refers to one specific object, the person of Jesus Christ. And then the last thing we read at the end of verse 7 is praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Clearly then, clearly then, saving faith is in Jesus. Look at what the Bible emphatically and uncompromisingly teaches, that Jesus Christ is the one true object of saving faith. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And he who has a son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is the one object of saving faith. If you want the faith that saves, your faith must be in him. Faith in good things uh, you have won't save you. 
Faith in your baptism will not save you. Faith that you've walked down an aisle will not save you. Faith in joining a church will not save you. A close friend of mine once said that going to church does not make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Again, there's only faith in Jesus Christ himself which saves. Now the third mark of a true relationship with Christ is abundant joy. What is a sure sign you love the Lord Jesus and believe in him? Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And here it is. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Notice this is the second reference to rejoicing in this passage. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. True believers rejoice. They rejoice in spite of and in the midst of various trials. So how can we rejoice? Well, first we have the promise of future reward. And we also rejoice because we have the power of a present relationship. The word rejoice translates like this. It says, much leaping. That's dangerous for an ex-Pentecostal like me. Now, I know that some folks think it's too much to say amen. It's too much to clap their hands or stand up and praise, uh, uh, stand up and praise to God. Uh, some folks do not think it takes all of that to praise the Lord, and I guess that can be true too. But Peter says, if you love Jesus and believe in Jesus, the joy of the Lord ought to well up in you and make you leap for joy. This has nothing to do with your ethnic background or cultural idiosyncrasies or educational level or denominational affiliation or your theological distinctives. It's about your personal relationship to Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus and believe in Jesus, this ought to cause you to rejoice. Amen? If you know the Lord for yourself, it ought to make you leap for joy. I love Jesus. I'm going to jump off here right now. My wife made a face, so I won't. <laughs> you know, every now and then you should feel like David uh, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant home. What, what did he do? He danced right out of his clothes. A personal relation with Jesus is marked by abiding joy. The word inexpressible is used here only in the New Testament. It describes joy that is so deep that words can't explain it. It's a joy that you cannot keep to yourself. You can't explain it, but you can't hide it. You know, I'm always saddened. <clears throat> I'm saddened by professing believers who exhibit no joy. All they ever talk about is their past struggles, the trials they endured, and why it makes them who they are today. It explains away their disobedience, their lack of prayer, their view of Scripture as not being in step with the so-called reality of life in the world we live in today. 
They use terms like, it's, it's only human. Or they accuse those who try to minister to them of not being very understanding of their plight and their struggles. How can we possibly have joy when we engage in unbelief? How can, we, how can we have joy when we place our struggles above the only person who saves us and gives us peace and who transcends understanding? How can we have joy when we dismiss the wisdom of Scripture and run to the world for wisdom, to secular counselors, to unbelievers who always seem to side with us and say it's okay to be selfish and be the best version of you? I hate that. No. We need to imitate Christ. Not try to be some best sad version of ourselves. We need to rejoice in Jesus. And it shouldn't require us to be entertained or pressured or manipulated uh, to get us to rejoice in God. Psalms 100 verse 4 says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. So many people come to church, they come to worship down and defeated and discouraged, waiting for someone to do something to get them, him or her in the mood to worship God. But the psalmist says, You ought to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. What? Why? How? Well, Psalm 105 answers. It says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. To have joy, we need to stay connected to Christ. To abide in him. We will never be free from discouragement and despondency until we know and walk with the very fountainhead of joy. My friends, my brothers and sisters, no matter what the climate is, what the troubles are, what the difficulties are, there is joy for the child of God because joy is produced supernaturally by the Holy Spirit in us. Joy is understanding that being saved is not some cold business transaction in which we pray certain words of prayer and get the fire insurance from hell. And then we go on with our life. No. If you really love Jesus, you do so because you recognize who he is and what he's done for you. You realize that true, uh, uh, the, the true reality of God's grace and God's mercy, of his deep love for you, you realize that you have broken the laws of a holy God and you should have faced the wrath of God because of your sin. But you came to understand that in his incredible love and mercy, Jesus, the Son of God himself, who existed in the form of God, but didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and came to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what the Bible says. If we realize what he did for us to save us, 
then we will love him for that and we will rejoice. When we truly experience inexpressible joy, we will not drag ourselves into church and half-heartedly mumble some songs and prayers. We will sing with great joy because of the salvation we have been given, the salvation of our souls, the salvation of your souls. Verse 9 says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Have you ever wondered what your soul is? Your soul is the most important thing about you. Your soul is who you really are. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Your soul is what distinguishes you from the animals. It makes you in the image of God with a mind and a will and emotions. Your soul is a part of you that will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. And nothing in your life compares to the importance of your eternal soul. How do I know that? Because Jesus said it. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now, unfortunately, our souls have been corrupted with a sin nature, passed down to us from Adam. And as a result, whenever we have the opportunity to make our first choices, inevitably we choose sin. Every one of us. But the Holy Spirit regenerates God's elect, his chosen ones. Ephesians 1.13 says, You also, having believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. He comes into our lives making us born again. He gives us a new nature which loves him and treasures him like we talked about a few minutes ago. Our bodies will still die, but our souls will now live forever in heaven. Or as Peter said, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, our bodies will be raised one day too, as is promised in 1 Corinthians 15. But note, very importantly, that it is the salvation of your soul which is the central promise here in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not primarily about your money or your marriage or your job or your health or what some would call your best life now. There are principles in Scripture uh, which can help with all those areas. But Jesus does not guarantee us salvation financially or physically here on this earth. There have been good Christian folks who throughout history have been poor. There have been great Christians throughout all the ages who have been sick or who have had any multitude of difficulties. In fact, someone once observed that the greatest Christians often seem to have the worst difficulties. The gospel of Jesus uh, does not promise you deliverance from all those things in this life. What is promised is the salvation of your souls. Now to the fourth mark of a true relationship with Christ a motivated attitude of the heart. The greatest motivation for living the Christian life is to be found in our love for Jesus and his love for us. At the time Peter wrote these words, 
motivation in the Christian life was an important issue. He penned these words to believers who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. They were, as he calls them, exiles of the dispersion. These were Jewish believers who had never seen Jesus in his earthly ministry. But after hearing the gospel, they believed on him. And as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ, they received opposition from their own countrymen. And they, had to been for- they were forced to leave their homeland. Now think carefully about the situation of these Jewish Christians. They were undergoing painful suffering and experiencing severe persecution and personal sacrifice. And all for someone they have never seen. Why would they do this? Well, in the same way you and I are asked to give our lives over to service and sacrifice for someone we have never seen. Why should we do such a thing? In his answer to these questions, Peter presents us with one of the most basic and wonderful truths about the Christian life. The greatest motivation for living the Christian life is to be found in our love for Jesus and his love for us. Becoming captivated by a deep, passionate, and personal love for Jesus. Becoming gripped with a sense of his infinite personal love for us. That's what will motivate us. It will motivate any man or woman to give up all that they have for him. And suffer anything for him that he calls them to suffer. Perhaps... Maybe you can look back on some significant steps uh, in your Christian life. Definite periods of substantial uh, and permanent growth and maturing in your faith. But in all honesty, I hope you're like me. And that you can look back to see where you just a few years ago and feel this sense of personal shame over how immature you were then. And again, if you're like me, experience has taught you to expect that in a few short years, you'll be looking back to where you are now, feel gratitude to God that he's brought you even further along than you are today. I'm going to be celebrating 52 years of having trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior this coming June. And because of that, I'm very aware of the milestones in my Christian walk. Some of them were milestones characterized by uh, a new commitment to live sacrificially for Jesus that I didn't have before. Some occurred because God gave me a new, fresh hunger for the scriptures that I uh, previously didn't have. Some were marked by a new resolve to put aside sinful habits in my life. Some involved a new passion for prayer, for evangelism, or for fellowship with other believers. And as I've been looking back to these life-changing periods of growth in my walk with Christ, I've tried to understand that What it was that served as the immediate cause? What was the common element at work here in my soul? These turning points of my spiritual growth were products of entering into a deeper level of personal love and gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior from sin. I fell in love with Jesus in a deeper, more profound and personal way. 
as I came to understand how much he really loves me and how much he gave for me at the cross and how much he continues to do for me and how much he has promised to do for me in the future and throughout eternity, I grew to love him that much more. And as a result of that, this awakened sense of love, I became greatly motivated to give myself to him more devotedly and follow him more obediently. Now, in no way am I saying I've arrived in a spiritual life. In fact, the more I believe uh, I've been gripped by the love of Jesus for me, the less I feel as though I'm where I ought to be. But I believe that this one thing, great thing, a deepening experience of a personal love for Jesus and of his love for me, I was motivated. I wanted to move forward. I wanted to grow. Because Jesus loved me and I loved him in return. Whom having not seen, I have loved. Let me ask you all a few questions. I'm a question asker. What does your behavior toward the Savior tell the world about your love for Jesus? Can people tell by your zeal for Jesus, your personal sacrifice for him, your delight for his word, your obedience to his commands, your devotion to his worship, your faithfulness to fellowship with his family, that you are deeply and passionately in love with him? If they can't tell you love Jesus by your lifestyle and conduct before him, then by what can they tell? If they don't see your behavior that you love him, what does your behavior tell them you love instead of him? You know, having been in ministry around God's people for some time now, I found that there's two kinds of professing Christians. There are those that you have to keep struggling to motivate, to serve in the cause of Christ. And then there are others who are so made, motivated already that you can't seem to give them enough to do. There are those professing believers who can't seem to find the time to study their Bibles. And there are others that are barely interested in taking up their time with anything else but studying God's Word. There are those professing believers that have to be persuaded to coming into God's house for worship on Sunday. And then there are others who would say with David, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. There are those professing believers who can't find a prayer in their heart. And there are others whose hearts are so crammed full of prayers and praises to God <laughs> that they can't find enough words to utter them. There are those, these professing believers that you can't seem to get interested in the things of God unless you hold out some promise that you'll somehow keep them entertained. And then there are others who are so motivated in the things of God that they're wonderfully interesting and entertaining just to be around and watch. We have folks in here like that. I just love being around uh, uh, some of the folks in our church. I can, I can just see the love of Christ exude from their hearts. I could, I could see their motivation of love. I can see exactly how much they love Jesus. And that inspires and motivates me. 
And in the final analysis, the difference between these two types of professing believers isn't in their backgrounds. <clears throat> uh, it's not in their upbringing. It's not in their personal features or capabilities or education, uh, their social standing, or in any other natural external quality. The only difference between them is what is summed up in Peter's words, whom having not seen, you love. At the rock bottom, <clears throat> the one type of believer simply loves Jesus more and is more grateful to him than the other. Let me finish with these final thoughts. The great motivational power in the lives of Christians to whom Peter wrote was this kind of love for Jesus. They were willing to give themselves over utterly. They were willing to suffer the, the loss of all things completely. All this for someone they've never seen because they loved him. The motivating power of their love for Jesus wasn't found in their having loved him once uh, when they first placed their trust in him, then having little more to do with him after that. Sadly, that's the sort of love for Jesus that merely religious people display. They pray a prayer of faith and profess a trust in Jesus as your Savior at some point in time. And then for all practical purposes, that's the last they feel uh, that they need from him. Such people may be able to say that they loved Jesus, past tense, but the fact is they don't love him, present tense, as the ever-present guiding passion of their lives. It's the present tense sort of love that becomes the great motivation for the Christian life. The past tense sort of love for Jesus isn't a motivating love. And worse, it may be nothing else but the false hope of a self-deceived sinner still unwittingly lost <clears throat> in his or her sins. Consider for a moment what Jesus himself taught concerning motivational power that our love for him would have in our lives. He told his disciples, for example, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. He didn't say, if you fear me, keep my commandments. Or if you want what is best in your lives, keep my commandments. Or if you want to earn favor, my favor, keep my commandments. He placed a great motivation for keeping his commandments on love for him. If you love me, keep my commandments. Consider what else he said about this. He said that a keeping of his word was the identifying mark of those who loved him. John 14, 23 and 24 says... If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Jesus speaks here of a cause and effect relationship. The effect is that someone would keep his word, and the causes they love him. I believe you can safely say from this that if you see someone who sincerely and faithfully and wholeheartedly seeks to keep Jesus' word as a regular pattern of their life, you're looking at someone who truly loves him because the great motive for the Christian life is love for Jesus.
Let us pray. Father, thank you that you loved us first. Thank you that you are the cause of our salvation. Thank you that you have brought us into a relationship with you that has saved us, that has saved our souls for eternity. That we now have a place in heaven for eternity to be with you. To love you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I pray today, Lord, that if someone here doesn't love you today, that you show them by saving faith that you're reliable and trustworthy to be loved and to receive as Lord and Savior. And for others, I pray right now, Father, that if the relationship is a little bit dry, if their, if their prayers are dried up a little bit, if their walk is in a little bit of trouble, that you restore them with your love and your patience and your mercy so that they could be an amazing witness to your love. That we could say, though we have not seen him, we love him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.